0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome to this installment of The Dan Proft Show. Thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Follow us at danproftshow.com, where you can get podcasts of the program, as well as you can obtain those at uh, Spotify and iTunes and all the usual places, social media, Dan Prof Show and Dan Prof. Either one works. Follow them both. Why don't you? We begin where we left off yesterday with uh, Attorney General Barr's testimony before the House Judiciary Committee, such as it was, such as he was allowed to actually testify rather than just uh, be treated as a pincushion where there were racist or there (laughs) were Marxist screeds. Accusing Barr of racism, and it is part of the entire Trump administration, of course, in terms of the uh, law and order approach to rioters. And, for example, why no law and order approach to those who were protesting at state capitals in places like Michigan uh, for reopening of their states, right, protesting COVID-19 policy. Lost on those Democrat socialists was the fact. Well, there was no violence at those events; they were just protests. What we're talking about in places like Portland and Seattle and Chicago and New York City and New Jersey and on and on and on is violence, and there therein lies the problem and the distinction. It's curious why that's lost on Democrats. In point of fact, Bill Galston, who's liberal, writing the Wall Street Journal. Uh, to the extent that Joe Biden wants to ignore the violence that America's Americans are seeing around the country is to the extent that he doesn't want to be president. But I think the whole uh, bar uh, appearance before the House Judiciary Committee can be summed up in two clips. We played a few yesterday on the merits, such as there were time there was any time given to the merits. A couple of Republicans restating uh, attacks by Democrats provided a little bit of time for that. But. um, uh, I think it's summed up nicely you with know, the fact that Bill Barr had to fight for a five-minute bathroom break.
2: Sorry, Mr. Chairman, could, I, could we take Mr. a five-minute
0: break? dean is recognized. Could
2: we take a five-minute break, Mr. Chairman?
0: No. That's a common courtesy, Mr. Dean of is chairman, recognized. of every witness. I,
2: I waited 45, are, an hour for you this morning. I haven't are, had lunch. I'd like to take Mr. a five-minute break. Mr. Attorney
3: General, we're, we are almost finished. We're, we're, we're going to be finished in a, in a few minutes. If, if, otherwise... Uh, you can we can certainly take a break, but um, you're real
4: your
2: class. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> <yeah. Yeah. laughs>
3: yes. After this, if you still one, well, we'll have a break. No, he wants a break now. You want it now? And you just Fine. you just committee, mentioned rudeness. I think we're stand, seeing it on display. Let's let the attorney general have stand. a break. Committee <laughs> will stand and recess it now. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
1: Uh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Sardana, because I understand Jerry Nadler is a human colostomy bag, so he doesn't need to use the bathroom. But uh, even as uh, good tempered as Bill Barr was, he started to, look to get a bit annoyed. You're a real class act. You're a real piece of work, Nadler. And boy, isn't he. Uh, and uh, so that was one clip that tells you all about the uh, value of Bill Barr's time trying to have a conversation with antagonists from the Democrat Socialist Party. The second is just the the speechifying, the prepared Marxist screeds from House Judiciary Committee Democrats, at which any time Barr tried to respond, he was just treated with the reclaiming my time mantra to shut him down.
2: Lies. It wasn't I'm reclaiming my time in April. Times is when does something actually become custom. reclaiming my time? I'm site. Psych-
3: this is not a trick question in this country. I'm reclaiming my time, Mr. General
2: without any remedy. At all.
3: I'm reclaiming my time. Let me share with you. So You got to let him answer Reclaiming
2: my time. You, reclaiming my time, sir. Reclaiming my time. Uh, reclaiming
3: no, my time without political bias. He said he and found in April, evidence. Reclaiming my time, Mr. Attorney. In, reclaiming my time. Reclaiming my time, Mr.
2: Barr. Occurring
5: substances. Sir, Attorney
6: General. Reclaiming my time. <laughs> there are rules by which we operate here. I would ask you to respect them. But There's the no 64 act did not me. extend to reclaiming my time, sir. In both documents, well, Mr. General, I, I that's my what I was reclaiming about. my time, reclaiming my time. I think that it's a okay. uh, reclaiming uh, my time. And again, I'm shame happy.
3: Shame on you, Mr. Barr. Can I just say shame Mr. on you? Can I just my say time is expired?
1: <laughs> I mean, it's consistent with their desire to silence any dissent. So I guess they were being intellectually consistent based on their posture. At one point, uh, Barr Riley noted, I I thought I was here because you wanted me to testify. I thought I, I thought you wanted to hear from me, but apparently not. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by George Perry, who's a regular contributor to the American Spectator and former federal and state prosecutor. George, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
7: Okay, Dan, nice to be with you
1: uh so um how did you think uh Barr held up under the uh <laughs> the, 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 i mean the qu here's the here's my uh, statement uh there's a question and you're not allowed to answer it format of the uh, hearing
7: know, yeah yeah I said to a friend of mine while I was watching it I said, Barr could have sent you know a cardboard cutout of himself and they just could have yelled at it i mean it it was ridiculous i it, it looked like a bunch of chimps attacking einstein um i <laughs> and you know they didn't let the guy get a word in edgewise it was it was, and but you know what it it was a perfect illustration of how these people operate they get to say whatever they want you're not allowed to answer you know if, if as far as they're concerned no opposition is going to be allowed no countervailing opinions are going to be allowed and and god forbid that the attorney general of the united states which is a fairly serious position and Barr is maybe one of the best AGs we've ever had, you can't let that guy talk because who knows what could come out of his mouth, maybe even common sense.
1: Well, yeah, yeah. they shut him down. Uh, Reclaiming my time, George. Um, So, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, I mean, the, the thing, too, is, Please, I can't wait again for the next time where we're treated to a lecture from Dick Durbin or Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi about civil discourse and the need to hear people loud. And how can you shut people down? And the only way we're going to unify as a country and build consensus is by respecting one another's views (laughs) and so on and so forth. And then you have this performance.
7: Yeah, well, you know, Trey Gowdy uh, said last night on Fox. He said, what you saw today is, is a perfect example of why the Democrats hid crazy Uncle Uncle Jerry Nadler during the impeachment proceedings. They didn't want the world to see how this guy operates. And, you know, Nadler is the guy who's saying that these are peaceful protests in Portland and Seattle and throughout the country.
1: Antifa's a myth, right?
7: Yeah, yeah, Antifa's a myth, and these are peaceful protesters. Well, <laughs> You know, it it looks different to me and I think to anybody with eyes in his head. But, uh, you know, there's Nadler. For God's sake, he's chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. How did this happen? So it was great. From my standpoint, I thought it was just great because it works. if, If there are independent voters out there who are trying to decide who to vote for come November, this only highlights the choice. You can vote for Trump or you can vote for bat guano crazy. Well, that's what was on display yesterday.
1: Well, right. And uh, one of the moments I thought was a, was a powerful moment when Barr was actually allowed to speak was, in a sense, when did it become OK to burn down federal buildings, to build down a federal courthouse? You know, there was a person arrested yeah. for uh, attempted arson in Portland at the courthouse. We're defending the courthouse. We're not. Uh, looking for trouble since when did that become OK? And then he then he was asked by Republican Doug Collins, you know, what would happen? Do you, do you think what, would you, what do you think people in this body would do if the federal courthouse down the street was on fire? Was uh, there was an arson at the federal courthouse? And Barr said, this body, I don't know what they do, uh, which was a nice <laughs> failed shot as well. Uh, but, but, but one other thing, Barr did make news yesterday, and this was sort of underappreciated. The Wall Street Journal editorial board caught it and the news was that uh John Bash who's US attorney for Western Texas has been tasked uh-huh. to review Obama era uh, Obama era unmaskings um while the yeah. maskings may have been legal the classified information in the transcripts later leaked to the press to damage the Trump administration uh may not have been and that's being looked into and and that was something that's lost in all the you know I reclaim my time nonsense
7: well yeah and uh the only thing that makes me nervous is, you know, we're waiting for Durham and I know Durham's got a tough job. We're waiting for him to come out and, and start bringing charges. And he, and Barr was asked yesterday, you know, would you prevent Durham from releasing a report uh, before the election? You know, cause that would just be political, wouldn't it? Well, you know, Barr to his credit, just said, no, I'm not going to get in the way of anything Durham's doing. and, and then again, he was asked a number of times, well, how about this? How about that? And, you know, at one point, Barr said, I'm going to follow the law. I mean, what a radical notion. An attorney general is going to follow the law. And these people were just jumping up and down on his head for those answers. But
1: well, uh, let's, let's see that when we come back, I, I want to pick up this discussion, this topic area, both the Durham uh, investigation as well as what John Bash is doing. Uh, in the context of an interesting exchange Maria Bartiroma had with Valerie Jarrett on the topic, more with George Perry, former federal and state prosecutor, contributor to Philadelphia Inquirer right after this. Oh,
0: oh, Listen to the podcast of the show at Dan Prof Show.
1: Welcome back to the program. We were uh, talking about uh, the news, the actual substantive news Barr made yesterday, uh, and that was the assignment of John Bash, U.S. Attorney for Western Texas, to review the Obama era on maskings. And this was a topic that uh, Maria Bartiroma picked up and was very forceful on. And she had her facts down because she's been covering this uh, since the inception uh, in a conversation with Valerie Jarrett, you know, uh, Obama's right hand during his tenure. Listen to this exchange on the topic of these unmaskings, starting with the unmasking of General Flynn.
6: It's, if people want to have an investigation about what happened 40 years ago, they should do that. But aren't you concerned about what's going on right now? Aren't you worried
4: about the integrity of our upcoming elections aren't you worried about how we're going to have a safe and fair election yes that's midst- why i'm asking so that- you this question that's what valerie that's exactly why i'm where i'm asking you these questions because I am a patriot and do not wanna see people in positions of power put their finger on the scale and make up a story that there's collusion with a foreign power when there's absolutely no evidence of that. And if the powers that be knew that there was no evidence of that in early January, I wanna make sure that we do not have the powers in government spying on political campaigns because the other political campaign paid for it. We know that Hillary Clinton paid for the dossier. So this was an election year. You've got one campaign paying for dirt on another campaign, and you've got the amazing intelligence agencies of our government weaponized. So that's what has taken place here. You're saying you knew nothing about it. You were President Obama's right hand. And a lot of people wonder how much President Obama directed this. So I ask you, did President Obama direct any of this? That's not how it works. That's not how our investigations work,
6: that we leave that to the intelligence community to bring forward information. And, and, and the dossier, I would imagine, would be one piece of a much bigger puzzle. And so if you're saying, is it important to make sure that there isn't influence—and actually, the Mueller report didn't conclude that there wasn't any wrongdoing. In fact, he was explicit in saying quite the opposite. And so I don't think we should read in where well, there hasn't might- been actually any conclusions to that effect yet. You're making statements that actually just,
4: have been just to be clear, ever. just to be clear, Robert Mueller said no collusion. Michael Horowitz, the I.G. Uh, of the FBI, said that the dossier was, quote unquote, an essential piece of all of this investigating of the Trump campaign. Essential piece was the word Michael Horowitz used. So you say it was part of a larger uh, mosaic. We have no evidence of that. We only have evidence of the dossier.
1: Yeah, it's just one stitch in the quilt, the dossier, when it was, in fact, central to everything that uh, uh, perpetuated the the Russian collusion investigation. And again, bringing uh, George Perry back into the conversation, regular contributor, the American Spectator, former state and federal prosecutor. You know, we were talking before the break about the importance of the Durham report, uh, seeing the light of day and the recommendations, assuming charges. Uh, before we're, you know, in the last 60 days of the campaign. And that's anticipated, but who knows? It's so important because of exactly what Bartiroma said at the outset, a reckoning for the weaponization of those law enforcement and intelligence agencies. And if that doesn't come before the election, it may never come.
7: Well, it's true. And frankly, even if uh, Durham were to come back with indictments, even at this stage, the question becomes, well, if Trump is not reelected, what happens to those prosecutions? I mean, I could see Joe Biden just dismissing everything, you know, the, you know, pardoning everybody or the new attorney general under Biden coming in and saying, yeah, we're withdrawing all the charges. I mean, it's very, very late in the game to be bringing the charges. They ha- It has to be done. I mean, the evidence is just has been to me it was overwhelming months ago but i look durham has got to get the witnesses lined up he's got to get everything in place i'm not criticizing him he's been given a hugely difficult job but the fact of the matter is we're late in the game to get this done and even if he were to start bringing in indictments tomorrow the the danger is That if Trump is not reelected, it will all add up to nothing because it can all just be swept under the carpet by President Biden and whoever he has actually running the government. Because as we all know, Biden has got a lobster bib and drooling on himself in his basement, and he's not really going to be running anything. So it's late in the game, and I'm very concerned about that.
1: I want to get uh, go back to uh, the, the rioting on America's streets and, and the um, argument that uh, Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin, a former federal prosecutor, incredibly, that she made on CNN yesterday uh, after she was queried about 59 police officers, Seattle police officers, being injured over the weekend in the rioting there. And after blaming Trump for having federal law enforcement there and that exacerbated the rioting and the reaction. And so it's their fault. Remove the federal, you know, appease, remove the federal law enforcement. You won't have the rioting. She uh, suggested that this is what Trump and Barr are really up to.
6: He is. He's clearly targeted cities run by Democratic mayors. He said so himself. He's using law enforcement as a political tool. I hate to say it, Aaron, but I really believe that we are seeing the dry run for martial law. This is a president that is using law enforcement and federal forces for political purposes, and that should be chilling to every American.
1: Uh, dry run to, for uh, martial law, George.
7: Look, what went on in Seattle, by the way, was a surge of you know federal law enforcement, which and they've been withdrawn, and the unrest is still going on there, and it's different than what's going on in Portland, where. The courthouse, the federal courthouse is under siege. And, you know, Trump has got federal law enforcement there just to protect the courthouse. But these people who are talking about this surge of federal law enforcement under Trump, Trump surged federal law enforcement before the rioting broke out. He was sending more and more federal agents into cities like New York and Chicago, where the violence has been going up and up and up. Thanks to the brilliant leadership of people like Lori Lightfoot and uh, Bill de Blasio, that surge began before the George Floyd Memorial riots and has continued. So there's nothing new to this federal law enforcement surge. And frankly, the feds have always been helping local law enforcement get the job done, even on the, the violent crime front, which has traditionally been a a local a matter of local interest the only place where you've got a different kind of federal presence is in portland and why do we have it there because they're trying to burn down the courthouse and the local authorities in portland are doing nothing about it as a matter of fact i I read today where you know the fence that the feds have put around the courthouse the city of portland is fining the federal government right. five hundred dollars for every fifteen yeah. minutes that that fence is up because it bo- it blocks a bike lane.
1: The the problem.
7: This is insanity.
1: The problem, right? The problem is not the rioters. It's the it's yeah, federal okay. law enforcement officials. It's remarkable. George Perry, uh, regular contributor to the American Spectator and former federal and state prosecutor. George, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
7: Hey, okay, thank you, Dan. Great to be with you. Take care.
0: Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, uh, switching gears from propaganda as it pertains to writing on the streets of America's cities to propaganda as it relates to things COVID-19 related, like the education of young people. Look who's come around. Mr. Lockdown himself, Mr. No School Till 2021, Bill Gates on CNBC. For young children, the benefits in almost every location, particularly if you can protect the teachers well, the benefits outweigh the costs. As you get up to age like 13 and higher, then you'll have to look at your locale to decide what you'll do with High schools, and if they're not in, then you have to put massive effort into trying to get there to be continued learning online. Uh, Good luck uh, working around your fellow travelers and teachers' unions there, Bill. But uh, a concession by Bill Gates nonetheless, even if he characterizes as not a change in his position, it is a change in his position. For more on all things COVID 19 related, we're pleased to be joined again by Dr. John Bao, emergency room doctor and the chief medical officer and co founder of Remote Health Solutions. Dr. Bao, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. You bet. Uh, so we'll just start with the uh, most um, contentious issue right now because of the posture of Republicans versus Democrats nationally. All, also the posture of a lot of parents versus a lot of teachers and administrators and teachers unions with respect to kids being back in the school, uh, back in school, in, in the classroom and for more than two days a week. Otherwise, you got to all sorts of logistical problems for families in addition to Concerns about the social and intellectual development of kids not in the classroom as we saw from studies of being not in the classroom in the spring as opposed to how it slowed the intellectual growth the progress in math and reading Brown University study Washington University IHME study Reuters analysis for young people so I mean is there any question in your mind and I guess uh, even making it personal like MSNBC did with a bunch of pediatricians last week. Any question in your mind that kids should be back in school? Would you send your kids back to school?
8: There's really no question about where these kids should be. And I do. I've got four kids between the ages of 4 and 14. And, uh, you know, my youngest son, he's already back in uh, in preschool. We've been smart about it. we thought about it. we talked a lot about it between my ex-wife and I. And he's back in, and we've looked at that for our other kids when they go back into grade school and middle school and high school. I think that when we look at the benefits of having my kids continue to learn in a structured environment, in an environment that I really can't adequately provide by myself as a a single dad at home, I'm uh, working full-time as an emergency medicine physician, I can't provide the kind of dedicated education that they really deserve and the online schooling that we did in the spring really doesn't give the same depth of education that they get in the classroom. In fact, I I use the example, my my nine-year-old is in a Chinese immersion program in her elementary school. There's no way that I can teach her Chinese at home. I don't know Chinese, and even if we hire an online Chinese tutor to be able to work with her a couple hours a week, it's a totally different experience from her being able to be immersed in the Chinese language for um, half of a day, about five days a week.
1: Is this uh, as you talk to medical professionals in various disciplines, uh, nurses as well, public health professionals, uh, just in your everyday life? Is is there is there any divergence from the view you just expressed? Is, is that the consensus opinion in the professional circles in which you operate?
8: Surely there's divergence, but that's, that's just because there everybody has their opportunity to have their own opinion. But I would say the vast majority of uh, people I know, whether they have the same political views of me or not. Um, within the medical field feel the same way that I do about getting kids back into school. And I have some some partners and some friends uh, and, and associates all across the country that live in very different locales from me and have very different political views from me. And yet they all understand that our kids should be in school. And one of the caveats to that is when we look at how do we get our kids back in school and, and and what do we do? if we look at the sort of the CDC guidelines or suggestions that originally came out with uh, social distancing um, some of those become really almost very impractical and almost uh, unachievable in a, in a grade school environment you know if we start talking about um, in the state of Utah where I where I live and reside um, they say masks K through 12 all the way down to the five-year-olds that are coming in, in kindergarten, um, all the way up through 12th grade seniors in high school, um, all day, and and I think well maybe maybe that's obtainable. It's definitely going to be hard for many of the young kids, um, but some of the other things are being able to have social distancing, six feet between desks, and you don't have them all forward facing, and, and have kids stay in a classroom and have teachers rotate. That's just So it's just not something that is even feasible. It sounds like these ideas are coming from people who are not involved in education and surely don't have kids in uh, education anymore.
1: When we come back, uh, I want to pick up our discussion by talking about sort of the selective coverage of case spikes and how how we should sort of conceive of the increase in infections that is being reported even in a stilted way. More with Dr. John Bao, emergency room doctor and the chief medical officer and co-founder of Remote Health Solutions right after this.
7: Get on the run, baby If
0: that's the way you want it, baby Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to the show. Uh, Deborah Burks. last week at uh, Task Force meeting said to the public. What well, we have right now are essentially three New Yorks with these three major states. She's talking about the case spikes in Florida, Texas, and California. Is that right? Well, I don't know. I'm looking at New York and the death rates per 100,000 residents versus some of the other states. Florida's right now is 27 per 100,000. U.S. overall is 45, so Florida is about half the median based on the U.S. overall. New York, by comparison, is 387 deaths per 100,000 residents. 387 versus 27, and we have the same situation in Florida and New York. Clearly, we do not. We also are not just seeing case spikes in states that reopened early, those, those bad states that wanted to begin to get back to something approaching pre Covid nineteen life. Spain uh, reports that uh, infections are up sixfold in a month. The um, Germany recently reported an outbreak in Bavaria tied to migrant farm workers. Margaret farm workers from uh, Romania. Australia's new daily cases have increased elevenfold in the last month. Japan and Hong Kong both hailed as models, experiencing flare-ups tied to travelers and social gatherings. Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe doesn't believe, see, doesn't, uh, believe it's necessary to shut down businesses since most cases so far among young people and hospitals have ample capacity. Golly gee, that sounds more or less like the situation in Arizona, Texas, and Florida, and California for that matter. The Wall Street Journal opines amid the post-lockdown flare-ups. It's worth revisiting Sweden, which has been widely criticized for never closing businesses and primary schools. And yet cases have been falling over the past month after a modest uptick in June. Only 27 patients have died in the last week. That's fewer per capita than New York, where, where Andrew Cuomo is on a conquering hero media tour for the great job that he did. Uh liberals quick to cite Sweden's relatively high death rate compared to some Western European nations. But the Wall Street Journal reminds us two-thirds of the deaths have been those over the age of 80. 97% never received intensive care treatment of the deaths. So blame Sweden's socialized health care system, which rationed treatment for the elderly, even though ICUs were never overwhelmed. The lesson, the virus won't disappear anytime soon. And our response to it may need more adjusting rather than the whack-a-mole approach that so many states are taking at the behest of so many public health professionals. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Dr. John Bao, emergency room doctor and chief medical officer and co-founder of Remote Health Solutions. Dr. Bao, how have you taken this in over the last couple of weeks as, you know, we're supposed to now focus on Florida and Texas and Arizona less so California, because they're dutifully doing the lockdowns that the media wants. When you put it in context of the rest of America and also the rest of the Western world in terms of infections versus hospitalizations versus death, but the new metric being only case numbers.
8: Yeah, I think that you bring out a great point that very few people in mainstream media are talking about. And as a physician in the ER, I am seeing an increased number Of COVID 19 cases, but what I'm not seeing is I'm not seeing an increased number of severely ill patients, nor am I seeing an increased number in our ICU. Our ICU numbers have fallen over the past couple of months, and our patient survival rate is almost perfect. You know, we we do have some mortality. If we look at and we compare back to New York at the beginning of this American institution of this pandemic where uh, there was a big difference in how severe the disease was there and as we've opened up the country and been able to have people go out and restart their lives and go back to work we have seen an increased number but what we're seeing relatively healthy people get the disease and they become ill for a few days or a couple of weeks and then they get better. What we know that we wanted to do at the very beginning was flatten the curve so that we would have appropriate resources and we need to reach this herd immunity. And so if what we're going to do is continue to shelter at home for the next um, uh, 12 to 18 months, then and, and we just can't do that. That's unsustainable for the country. And it's unsustainable for individuals. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people forget is we're not just talking about a country. We're talking about individuals with jobs, families, and need to be able to put literally put food on the table. Like I said, I'm I'm seeing cases. Every day I see I see COVID-19 patients, but I'm not seeing as sick patients. And and I don't know if that is because exclusively because we're having more healthy younger patients, because that's not all that I'm seeing. I'm seeing older patients as well. But I do think that there's probably, as this um, virus mutates or as we have um, different strains of it, we're definitely seeing a more moderate, less severe strain um, of, the, of the COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, and I think that that's a big portion of what we're seeing because we're just not seeing the, the deadly severity and high mortality that was initially seen in New York, New Jersey.
1: As the um, you know politicking over various therapeutics continues... Um, what what do you use or have you used to treat the patients that uh, you're treating, in terms of everything from hydroxychloroquine to dexamethasone to remdesivir? What, what has what have you been using and what has shown um, promise? What has worked uh, with your patients?
8: One of the things that has happened Emma, during this pandemic is. Medicine over the past 20 years has really taken a strong position of being evidence-based medicine. In medical school and residency and training, we all talk about our evidence-based medicine. And then during this, for some reason, we've allowed politics to decide what we use for, for treatment of patients with COVID-19. And it's amazing to me that that's been allowed by the medical community. So the things that we see that work, um, uh, that have good science and good data behind them, and the things that I'm using, the first one that came out with good data to back it up was was dexamethasone, that Decadron, that steroid, and that is something that's easy, cheap, and available, and it reduces mortality both early and late. And so I use that frequently. the The studies that came out that um, put down hydroxychloroquine, we see, we know that they were flawed. We know that they're was also the fact that they did not include azithromycin and zinc in those studies and we know that their, their data that they pulled was questionable. So um, I'm using hydroxychloroquine as well, I think that's an important part and I do think it's important to be able to um, include azithromycin and zinc in that regimen. And as we've seen over the past couple of days, um, many other physicians are using that as well and having great success with their patients. Now, I don't use remdesivir. It's for IV in hospital ICU administration only, um, and the, and the data on it is a little questionable about whether it uh, it really doesn't reduce mortality. It uh, it does shorten the duration of symptoms, and that's just not in a field where I would be using, because I'm, I'm in the emergency department, not in the main part of the hospital.
1: He is Dr. John Bao, emergency room doctor, as he was just describing, and chief medical officer and co-founder of Remote Health Solutions. Dr. Bao, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks, exactly. Walk like an Egyptian.
0: The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof show. Time now for another reason why Dan Prof is single.
1: Yeah, and uh, following on our conversation with Dr. John Bow, we'll stay in the COVID nineteen space. Uh, this from the Daily Mail: Women in masks report. Rise in aggressive eye contact for men. Uh, women across the country are reporting a rise in aggressive eye contact since the introduction of face coverings in public places. New laws uh, over the weekend in the U.K. forcing masks in all shops, station banks, post offices, so on and so forth. Public transportation. Many women sharing stories online of aggressive eye contact and hard staring from men wearing masks. One tweeting grown men staring at you with a mask on is worse than when they don't have a mask. Mm hmm. The um, executive director, uh, UN women, you uh, British executive director, jeez, bureaucrats, Claire Barnett telling female, which is like the fashion relationship arm of the Daily Mail. As we work to build back better following the lockdown, we need to prevent the lack of witnesses of antisocial behavior due to less populated public spaces, as well as the anonymity face coverings can provide leading to further rises in harassment and threatening actions to women, girls and minoritized groups. <laughs> minoritized groups is a new phrase for me, but okay. Uh, Ms. Mennett goes on to say this will require widespread changes in attitudes and behavior, creating an understanding that behavior like unwanted and persistent staring is intimidating. And that we all have a role to play in making our public squares more inclusive. What does that even mean? Uh, okay. So don't stare, right? And especially if you're, if you don't have, uh, uh, bedroom eyes, um, uh, you know, if you're not getting a stare back, you know, you can kind of tell if some, I, I actually, I have no idea. This is why Dan Proft is single. But, uh, then just stop staring. You know, don't staring. It's, uh, it's a very fine line between flirtation and, um, you know, the the gaze of a serial killer, I guess, particularly in the minds of women, women taking to social media with their stories of intimidating behavior, saying there has been an increase in staring and demanding eye contact this is the phraseology that's used. Oh, my goodness. One person commenting, does anybody else feel like men are way more aggressively demanding eye contact in public since we all started wearing masks? So much hard staring is happening. I can't diffuse the attention by smiling like women are conditioned to do. It's weird. Yeah. Um, And going back to uh, Ms. Barnett, uh, the crisis is this. This is a crisis now. It's a crisis as having a damaging effect on women's economic opportunities, social experiences and health. So it remains more important than ever that women can move freely through public space without intimidation. Well, great. Let's do one of two things. Let's go a full crack pottery And just have the men blindfolded on behalf of me, too, uh, and masked up on behalf of COVID-19. Or, per these women, then uh, let's forget the junk science and the silliness, particularly outside where no transmission virtually has occurred. That's documentable. And uh, take the masks off and, uh, you know, re-engage other people as human beings, not mask-donned droids. This is Dan (laughs) Proff.
0: Is the Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to the show. Follow us at danproftshow.com. You get podcasts, the program there, as well as on iTunes and Spotify and all the usual places at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show on social media. And we'll uh, talk about those uh, tech titans testifying before Congress today. Uh, but first, I want to get uh, more reaction to what Republicans are proposing in terms of phase four COVID 19 relief. And whether a phase four relief package is even necessary, just because Nancy Pelosi says one is, doesn't mean Republicans need to respond, but they are, as we've discussed, and really responding starting from the premises of the left, it would seem to me, for more of an assessment. We're pleased to be joined by Veronique derougie. She is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, nationally syndicated columnist. Veronique, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
6: Thank you for having me.
1: Before we take a look back at how the uh, first... Phases of COVID relief played out and how sensible they were. Is there even a need for discussion of a phase four if we were otherwise moving in the direction of fully reopening commerce in America?
6: I think it's premature. And one of the reasons is that Congress appropriated um, roughly, if you count even the tax credits and stuff like this, roughly $3.6 trillion and is only actually distributed. 2.1 2.1 trillion. Now, again, some of there are different ways to measure this, but one thing is sure that they are probably roughly one trillion dollars of the money that was appropriated in phase uh, three that hasn't been spent yet. And the other thing is we're reopening the uh, we're reopening the economy. Hopefully, and we don't want some of the component of the CARES Act, which is phase three, to actually create disincentive to return to work, like unemployment benefits. Now, they're going to have to act, obviously, because it's expiring, and and they need to figure out what they want to replace it for and how, with, and, and if anything. So they're going to have to have discussions, but I think it's just very premature, so far, to spend
1: more money on anything else. And uh, is the Republican position of seventy percent can when combined with state unemployment benefits, seventy to seventy-five percent of your salary, with a, a two hundred dollar premium on unemployment insurance going forward, and not the six hundred dollar premium a, uh, per week that uh, Nancy Pelosi and Democrats want, which uh, resulted in uh, paying many people. More to be unemployed than they were when they were employed. That's clearly a disincentive. So it's,
6: most, it's most people.
1: Yeah, it's most, most people, people. Most people. And, and it's
6: like two. It's like two third.
1: Okay, so most people, and and there's there's clearly a disincentive there. What about uh, seventy to seventy five percent of salary? Are Republicans calibrating that right, or is everybody wrong?
6: So, one thing that we need to understand is like even during normal times, unemployment benefits have been. You know, widely documented to create disincentive to work. And the bigger, obviously, the replacement rate, the bigger the disincentive. There's no doubt that actually we need to put that extra bonus on a path glide to zero. And $200 from that perspective is. In improvement. That said, it. it's going to be creating disincentive to work. And what, one of the things that people don't on, often kind of fail to realize is that even if there were, wasn't a bonus, there would still be the state benefit that would still be applicable. Right now, this it's not that people just receive $600. They receive $600 on top of the state benefits, which, depending on the state, can be actually extremely generous. And there's another element that very, very few people talk about. It's like they just didn't do the bonus. They also expanded eligibility massively, and they expanded... The reasons why people could actually start claiming unemployment benefit, and and these are like just fear of the virus, no lack, no no childcare and things like this, and because there's so many people, there's actually absolutely no oversight of the program, so you can expect a lot, a lot of fraud.
1: So, from the perspective of a free marketeer like yourself, does anything the government has done to date, Republicans and Democrats? Uh, With respect to COVID-19 response, does any of it make sense? Was any of it the right thing to do if the response was going to be locking down economies? For example, the uh, payroll protection program, which uh, some conservatives, free marketeers like myself supported to say like government taking and you have to compensate the business owner. And this is a one way to do it. Or has it all been overreaches that are not properly monitored and are going to result in in ultimately negative impacts on our economic vitality in the medium term?
6: So I think During a pandemic or a recession, it makes some sense, even from a free market perspective, especially in this case where basically the economy was locked down in part by government. I mean, it's not the only reason why the economy slowed down and all of that stuff, but it makes sense for the government to do something. It is traditional for unemployment benefits to be expended by the federal government. The question is how much? The question is also, which direction do you go? Do you actually compensate individuals or do you compensate businesses? Do you pay for unemployment benefit, or do you actually pay businesses to uh, keep and retain their employees? Do you uh, pay for paid leave? What, which direction do you go? Do you do cash But Unfortunately, what they did is that they did everything. And they didn't just do everything. They did everything on steroids, right? It was like utter panic. And PPP. I mean, it sounds good on paper, but I actually had predicted because it was unworkable. It was going to be unworkable, and it was going to lead to mostly the bigger of the small business firms, and especially because they also put out a bunch of loopholes that allowed actually quite really big chain of restaurants and uh, and hotels to 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 be eligible to be the, the biggest beneficiaries, and 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 a lot of the small. Firms were going to have a really hard time accessing the benefit. Um, and so it was going to be a public outrage. But actually, people shouldn't be outraged. This is how it was designed. So, of course, big firms are taking advantage of something that's like you know, a really, really cheap loan and even possibly turning it into a grant. So the problem is not that they did something. Doing something is fine. It's that They did everything, mm-hmm. all directions. It was all cumulative. And they did it at a scale that is just unprecedented. And what what happens when you actually – this is exactly the problem. People are like – I mean, just to give you a, an idea, the economy was shutting down. Unemployment was reaching levels we had never seen before. Output was, was just really collapsing. And disposable income – was growing faster than it had in a very long time between February and May it grew by 5.4 percent Bank accounts uh, have been at its higher level in in you know in, in a very long time too so you have I mean everything the government does it actually takes from the real economy and you're like you're squashing the real economy, whatever one thinks about whether it's legit or not. I mean, part of it was going to happen because of the virus, but, and then you, you redistribute this money and, and people are not just like, you know, uh, we're not just alleviating the pain. We're actually making people even better off when they were, than when they were working, because we went in all directions and that's the problem.
1: And, and uh, that doesn't even contemplate the trillions on the fed side, the monetary policy, and Absolutely. and 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 we were we were uh, before the pandemic. We were talking about you know nobody really knows what unwinding a decade of quantitative easing is going to implicate. And now we have you know another four trillion on top of what we did for a decade. And and if we're being honest, if Jay Powell is being honest, that nobody really knows uh, how that is going to manifest itself in the future, and not the distant future. I mean, I-
6: I agree. And one of the big problems is that from the beginning there was a misassessment of what the problem was. This was not a demand driven recession. This is not like some sort of shock due to a bubble popping. And yet what did they do? They went and they used the old playbook for a recession that looks that looked nothing like this. And the problem we didn't have, we didn't have a banking liquidity problem. What we had, we have a uh, we have a, a, a retail and, and, and you know like the the, the, the real um, small business and stuff liquidity issues that's what we had and even for individuals even PPP was actually thinking the wrong way about this what we really need to do is actually kind of loosen up all these requirements to allow company to actually reinvent themselves they're just to to actually kind of figure out a way that they can survive. Um, and and I and my colleague Arnold Kling and I we just thought actually a line of credit would have been much better. It would have been repayable. It was a bit a very low interest rate, but it would have been available for everyone automatically. And those who decided to use it could have used it. They didn't have to rush through to get it right now. They didn't have to deal with the nightmare that the SBA um, uh, process was. Um, and and but they didn't go this way. They always look back at what they always do and and it just never work out the way they think it's going to work out on paper.
1: She is Veronique De senior fellow, senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and a nationally syndicated columnist. Veronique, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
6: Thank, thank you for having me. Take care.
0: the show at DanProftShow.com.
1: Welcome back to the program. Uh, We talked about this yesterday, the uh, situation with uh, Chicago Tribune columnist John Cass, who uh, took over the Page 2 column From Mike Rico, 23 years ago, been with the Tribune nearly 40 years and is uh, now perhaps on his way. He's gotten sidelined from his page two location in the paper. Not that the papers soon to have uh, pages at all. But you get the point. Deposed from that uh, slot. And, uh, of course, the Chicago Tribune Guild, which is uh, a group of Robespierre's, is trying to extinguish one of the few conservative voices in Chicagoland media, much as you see happening in around the country. It doesn't even need to be conservative voices, as we've seen at the the New York Times and the Philadelphia Inquirer and so forth. Uh, John Cass uh, responding to the calls for his replacement because he said something that is factually true about George Soros's funding of left-wing district and county state's attorneys around the countries, particularly in big cities, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, Kim Fox in Chicago, Chelsea Bowden in San Francisco, and so on. As Cass notes in his column, Politico in August of 2016 outlined the Soros money supporting local DA races. So did the Wall Street Journal in November of 2016. So did the Huffington Post in 2018. It's not in controversy, and he didn't mention anything about Soros's, uh Jewishness. Uh, he just mentioned Soros in the context of his money promoting these DAs and state's attorneys that are promoting a prosecute a culture of non-prosecution, which is exacerbating violent crime in urban centers. That was essentially the sum total of it. It's not a particular controversial position based on the evidence, but OK. They uh, suggested did the uh, Marxist in his newsroom that that was uh, promoting uh, anti-Semitic tropes and he should apologize. Well, uh, and then uh, again, the editor in chief made the decision that he be moved from his page two perch to uh, enhance the credibility of the news product over at the Tribune. Uh huh. Well, he responded in this way. As a columnist and political reporter, I've given some 30, 35 years of my life to the Chicago Tribune, even more if you count my time as an eager Tribune copyboy. And over time, readers know I have shown respect to my profession to colleagues in this newspaper. Agree with me or not. And that's not the point of a newspaper column. Uh, I, excuse me. And isn't that the point of a newspaper column? Agree with me or not. The whole point is to agree or disagree. Right. Yes. And that's isn't that the point of a newspaper column? I owe readers a clear statement of what I will do and not do. I will not apologize for right. Writing about Soros. I will not bow to those who have wrongly defamed me. I will continue writing my column. He goes on to say, after his will nots and his will, the left doesn't like my politics. I get that. I don't like theirs much either. But those who follow me on social media know that I do not personally criticize my colleagues for their politics, which certainly distinguishes him from his colleagues, I might add. A cast goes on. I try to elevate their fine work and I tell disgruntled readers who don't like my colleagues politics that it takes a village. Here's what I've learned over my life in and around Chicago and what my immigrant family taught us in our two flats on South Peoria street. We come into this world alone and we leave alone. And the most important thing we leave behind isn't money. The most important thing we leave is our name. We leave that to our children and I will not soil my name by groveling to anyone in this or any other newsroom. I will not soil by name by groveling to anyone in this or any other newsroom. I'll tell you what, um, here's what I suspect is going to happen because of the choice that John Cass made, and that's nothing's going to happen to John Cass. He will continue writing his columns, as he said, and the Tribune will continue publishing his columns, uh, even as it probably continues to hemorrhage readership, but it would be hemorrhaging it faster without John Cass there. And the reason is because... When you stand up to the mob, the mob backs down like any bully. I mean, this is as old as time. And yet it seems like a lesson few have learned. Maybe some aren't in the position to be as courageous as John Cass or as I am, because, uh, well, not Cass doesn't so much anymore, but he used to. And I still do. You have an employer who backs your play, who actually believes in free expression, who actually believes in. Uh, in pointed discussion and debate and disagreement. Not everybody is in that environment, that work environment. I understand that. Not everybody's so fortunate. Some people have to mind their manners a bit more because they can't lose their job because they have to feed their family and provide. And I get that. But at some point you do have to pick your spot at some point. How much are you going to concede when they liquidate your home to pay for your kids education that they then don't provide to your kid's intellectual and social detriment. You know, I mean, there's got to be a a, a line that you draw, that you man. And John Cass has drawn a line and he's manning it. He um, goes on to say in his piece, the larger question is not about me or the political left that hopes to silence people like me, but about America and its young. Those of us targeted by cancel culture, not, only victims. We are examples, as French revolutionaries once said, in order to encourage the others. Human beings do not wish to see themselves as cowards. They want to see themselves as heroes. And as they are shaped and taught to fear even the slightest accusation of thought crime, they will not view themselves as weak for falling in line. Instead, they will view themselves as virtuous. And isn't that the sin of it? Those who do not behave will be marginalized, but those who self censor will, will be praised. Yet, what of our American tradition of freely speaking our minds? Well, that's swept away, if that's the, if that's the culture, isn't it? The American tradition of freely speaking our minds, which distinguishes us from just about every other country on the planet, no country has that sort of the sort of protection and tradition of free thinking and free speaking as America. And and Cass makes an excellent point here, too. Nobody wants to think of themselves as cowards, so they rationalize their cowardice. But you can't have it both ways, can you? You can't say that I, you know, like so many Marxists in these newsrooms that are attacking Cass say. I am a advocate for the fourth estate, for our first freedoms as enshrined in our First Amendment, all of them, of course, freedom of speech. We must protect that. Freedom of the press, which is connected to that freedom of speech, freedom of thinking implicit. And then say, but if you freely speak in a way I don't like, then you're done. So in order to eliminate so-called speech that's violent or even silence that's violent, we're going to have to curtail everybody's rights. And the experts In positions of authority, particularly in government, we'll know just where to draw the lines. And then, you know, like we'll get along like the Russians do with not being able to freely speak our minds. We'll still be patriotic and we'll say, yeah, you know, I'd like to be able to freely speak my mind, but I I can get along this way. And there's nothing there's nothing unheroic about it. In fact, I'm being virtuous because I've helped tamp down hate speech, hate speech as defined as speech that disagrees with my speech or disagrees with the state-approved speech. And that's how it happens in increments. And that's how the American tradition of freely speaking one's mind disappears
0: in increments. This is Dan If you be my bodyguard, I can be a lost path. I can you Dave. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to the show. And it's interesting, as uh, most of the world's attention is focused on COVID-19 in terms of threats to civilization, such as it is, overwrought as it is, but nevertheless, in that space, the space of humanity, civilization, uh, public safety and health. Uh, but against that backdrop, we've had a number of new offerings on the environmental front. Uh, as We spoke with Michael Schellenberger, who wrote this remarkable apology for his previous help in exacerbating environmental alarmism and his... Uh, New book, Apocalypse Never, which documents some of the falsities that continue to be propagated by uh, the hyper left environmentalists. False Alarm, a new offering from Bjorn Lumberg over at the Copenhagen Consensus Center. And uh, now this piece from uh, Matt Ridley over at Fee.org, our friends at the Foundation for Economic Education. I was an enviro-pessimist in the 1980s, but human ingenuity proved me wrong. And that's to somebody who was working for a free market environmentalist outfit at the time. Uh, The uh, power of uh, worst case scenario, I guess, uh, this whole thing is a testament to. And that does actually connect it back to COVID-19. But for more on the environmental piece, we're pleased to be joined by Matt Ridley, whose books have sold over a million copies, been translated into 31 languages. And he's the winner of several awards, including prestigious awards in the, the universe of free minds and free thinking, free minds and free thinking and speaking, I should say. Matt Ridley, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
5: Good to be on the show, Dan.
1: Um, well, so, so um, you know, it's interesting, again, sort of the reflection back to when you started out and you were working for uh, this free market environmental organization, PERC, uh, based out of Montana, I think, uh, back in 1980.
5: I was working uh, in 1980. I was working in a university and I was uh, back in the U.K., and I was doing survey I, I was helping to do a wildlife survey in the Himalayas and I you know, I was really pessimistic that sheep were increasing and the people with guns were increasing and wildlife was declining and the forests were being cut down and and I looked around the world and I just thought everything was going wrong because everybody told me it was going wrong. The population explosion was unstoppable, pesticides were shortening our lives, the famine was gonna increase, the oil was running out, you know, every environmental uh, trend seemed to be in the wrong direction, pollution, whatever whatever you might think. And I look back now and I'm amazed at my pessimism because it was wholly wrong. Pretty well everything has gone in the good direction since then. Um, and I, I'm just uh, very keen that young people hear this because they're getting the same apocalyptic message now. And in fact, you know, we're living in a golden age when we've brought back species from the brink of extinction. We've increased the amount of forest cover on Earth, where the whales are back. You know, There were 5,000 humpback whales left in the 1960s. There are 80,000 now. Um, sure.
1: I remember the, the bald eagle in America, right? That was uh, on the brink of extinction, and now that's off the endangered species list.
5: That's right. It's everywhere. Uh, and we've got the same phenomenon in the U.K. We've got a lot of birds of prey, like ospreys and kites that were pretty either extinct or very nearly extinct in, in the U.K., and they've come back. So um, uh, uh, my main argument is that if you, uh, if, if you think prosperity is the problem, you're wrong. The more prosperous you make a nation, uh, the, the, the less impact it has on the environment because people get more efficient in the way they operate. They tend to become more urbanized. They go to shops instead of, you know, they buy chicken meals in a shop rather than going into the forest to hunt a monkey. Um, quite literally. Uh, they get electricity delivered to their home on uh, water through a pipe, rather than going to the river or going to the forest to cut down trees. Um, so they have less impact. And you can see this very clearly. I, I, what I, When I go to schools, I always say, um, why is the wolf increasing in numbers, uh, the lion decreasing at the moment, and the tiger holding its own? And the answer is because wolves live in rich countries, uh, Uh, Lions live in poor countries, and tigers live in middle-income countries. It's really that simple.
1: Mm. When we come back, I want to ask you a question, uh, why a generation is choosing to be child-free, and uh, offer one answer for your reaction from Sean Kane, who's a columnist at The Guardian. More with uh, Matt Ridley right
0: after. good seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show
1: we are back with matt ridley author most recently of the book how innovation works and why it flourishes in freedom prolific author he uh, uh man i wanted to get your reaction to this we were talking about uh, uh, your piece about why you were uh, an environmental pessimist in the 1980s and uh, how human ingenuity proved you wrong. And we were speaking about it in, in the context of the animal kingdom and these animals that were on the endangered species list and, and in rich countries, no longer on the endangered species list. Human innovation, as you suggested, environmentalists were wrong to fear economic development, wrong to oppose capitalism, and they still are. Well, uh, Sean Kane writing in uh, The Guardian, why a generation is choosing to be child free. And this is essentially a position more extreme in its presentation, but a position held by a lot of American politicians from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to many others on the uh, Democrat socialist left. She writes, we're in the middle of a mass extinction, the first caused by a single species. There are 7.8 billion of us humans on a planet that scientists estimate can support Only 1.5 billion humans living as the average U.S. citizen does today. And we know that the biggest contribution any individual living in affluent nations can make is to not have children. Is she right?
5: No, she's not right, because a child is not just a mouth that needs feeding. It's also a brain and a pair of horns that can do ingenious things and help make the world a better place. Yes, there's a limit. You know, we, if we got to 15 billion people on the planet, uh, it would become problematic or 100 billion or something. You know, I don't know where the limit is. But the idea that we can't support 7.7 0.7 billion people, which we've got now, is not. When I was young, there were 4 billion people on the Earth and most of them, many of them were hungry. Now we've got 7.5 billion people and very few of them are hungry. We've extinguished famine in the last um, 50 years. It's quite extraordinary. It really is extinct. It occasionally happens in brutal dictatorships like North Korea on a relatively small scale. Now, it doesn't happen because of lack of food anywhere in the world. Um, it just uh, you know people are still hungry in some places, but that's because they can't get you can't get the food to the right places. We're actually shrinking the amount of land we we need to to feed the human population, even as the human population grows. So um, uh, people are choosing to have smaller uh, families, uh, and that's largely because they know their children are not going to die in most of the world. When when you knew that half your children were going to die, you had as many as possible. Now that you can be sure they'll survive, you think in terms of having a small number that you can get through school and college. Um, I'm talking about developing countries, and that's why you know, the birth rate in Africa is falling extremely fast at the moment, and the world population is going to level out probably below 10 well certainly below 10 billion probably below 9 billion which is far
1: lower than anyone thought um, twenty years ago, yeah, just on the the the, the aspect to i mean it's it's remarkable to me how bad arguments persist and they just represent themselves, so these neo Malthusian yeah. arguments that are being presented, I mean you're a Julian Simon award winner, Julian Simon famously won the bet with Paul Ehrlich about the population bomb Absolutely. that that uh, never detonated because he didn't understand just as Malthus didn't that uh, populations uh, grow arithmetically and food production grows geometrically. And as you say, innovation now, I I'm mean, I'm full, full disclosure about the company I'm about to reference. There's a company called Plenty in which I'm an investor that's doing, you know, vertical farming indoors, as you were talking about needing yeah. less and less space to produce uh, more and more food to distribute the world over. So it's always a, a you know sort of a, a political, uh, usually a political dictatorship problem in poor countries where you have, Uh, citizens, where you have human beings starving, like in Venezuela. It's not an ability to actually feed those people if you were interested in feeding people and not interested in lording over them. And that seems to be just completely misunderstood, uh, perhaps purposely by people who are still clinging to that zero population growth argument like this uh, Guardian op-ed columnist.
5: You're you're exactly right. and I completely agree with you about vertical farming. I mean, there's a factory in Japan that produces 30,000 lettuce heads a day, And it uses about one three hundredth of the space that you would need to produce that in the open air. It uses less water, uses uh, no pesticides. You know, um, this is the future of farming, actually. You stick a lot of it indoors, not all of it, but some of it indoors. And then we need less land and then we can have bigger national parks and more wildlife. And uh, I think our grandchildren are going to have a a greener, better, richer planet to, to live on. We should be doing the same in the oceans. To some extent, we are. We're eating about half the fish we eat is now farmed rather than wild caught. But we have a problem that feeding farmed fish is difficult without catching the fish to feed to them. So there's still a, an issue there. So there's lots of issues to be solved environmentally. But the but, idea that we're on the brink of disaster is just wrong.
1: And and I like the connection. Our future uh, Americans and and people the world over are going to live richer and in richer and greener environments. And and the, the key is to connect those dots. Right. So uh, as you were describing before, and so when you have a, a presidential candidate like Joe Biden in this country, affirming, reaffirming really his commitment to kill the fossil fuel industry, which is sort of uh, taken as received wisdom on the left these days, the Green New Deal and so on and so forth. That just runs afoul of an energy sector that frankly produced the overwhelming majority of job gains during the Obama presidency of which Joe Biden was a part. And that that dynamism of the energy sector and the independence of our energy sector now in this country is a key to our wealth and a key to, again, connection, having a greener planet, having a greener America.
5: Yeah. yeah. Well, the shale gas revolution is the biggest energy revolution of recent years. And remember, just 10 years ago, we were talking about peak oil and peak gas. And now we recognize that that's not going to happen. There's enormous reserves because we've we've worked out how to get it out of shale. Um, Not only has that made producing areas like uh, Texas and North Dakota very rich, um, but it's also been a huge benefit to the consumer. Uh, And the great thing about fossil fuels is that nature doesn't want them. And let's just say, you know, woodpeckers and antelopes are not eating coal, oil, and gas, whereas they are eating Um, Grass and wood and those kind of things, which otherwise we would have to depend on to get our energy because um, uh, Or indeed sunlight, you know, the sunlight is used by by the forests Um, uh, So the idea that, that you would You would turn your back on these energy sources that are very dense, very high density Very efficient in terms of the return on input You put a certain amount of energy in and get a huge amount of energy out Um Uh, and instead go back to the medieval habit of using the whole landscape to produce your energy and stealing your energy from wildlife, feels to me utterly retrograde. And yet that's what the environmental movement keeps asking for.
1: He is uh, award-winning author Matt Ridley, whose books have sold over a million copies, been translated into 31 languages, and his latest, How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. Matt Ridley, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Great
5: to be on the show. Take
1: care.
0: the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
1: Welcome back. Uh, Joe Biden came out of his basement to uh, take some softballs from the Assemble DC Press Corps about the uh, campaign. Uh, And uh, he offered some lip service to the idea that, you know, people trying to Uh, Burn down federal buildings, people attacking police officers with explosives, people stabbing and shooting other people. Uh, Those assailants need to be arrested and prosecuted. That's nice. Unfortunately for him, his party wants to see police out of the schools and frankly out of the communities. What about uh, having a police-free DNC? Associated Press reporting... More than 100 police agencies are withdrawing from agreements to send personnel to bolster security at next month's DNC in Milwaukee. They're concerned about a recent directive ordering police in the city of Milwaukee to stop using tear gas to control crowds. The uh, police chief of Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, telling the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the agreements are collapsing and he expects other agencies in the state to also withdraw. Uh, He and others sending letters to express concern about the Milwaukee common councils to temporary halt of the purchase of pepper spray and tear gas. Uh, as one police chief uh, told the Milwaukee journal Sentinel in the email, our concern is that in the, in the event protests turn non peaceful, such a policy would remove tools from officers that may otherwise be legal and justifiable to use in specific situations. So we're not going to go there to just be cannon fodder for the mob as we've seen in other cities. Oh, by the way, it's worth noting that, uh, you know, we're still waiting for progress on the investigation of the murder of a black 60 year old gentleman uh, in Milwaukee who was known to be an outspoken Trump supporter uh, was selling t t-shirts and signs and, Uh, other sloganeered material on street corners. I mean, he was known in the community gunned down and Milwaukee police suspect uh, a a, a political motive. They're investigating that possibility. And where is the attention being drawn to that violent crime? You know, the, the lack of interest in crimes like that, the lack of resources to police send the message that the rule of law is not a high priority for our community. So uh, Joe Biden, you know, you go ahead and take the uh, Jenny Durkin, Lori Lightfoot, Bill de Blasio. I could go on, but you get the picture. Ted Wheeler, approach to law enforcement at the DNC and see how that works out for you. See if um, uh, allowing the mob to run free, to reign over the streets, see if those optics are See if if that were to occur. See how those optics play in middle America in swing states. A DNC and a Democrat Socialist Party that eschews police so much so that they're willing to jeopardize their own safety and the safety of Milwaukee residents when they their presence, their presence in a city draws these mobsters like
0: moths to a flame. This is Dan Price.
1: Welcome to another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. To America from a worried European friend, column in The Wall Street Journal from Daniel Schwamenthal, who is the director of the AJC Transatlantic Institute. America is what it's always been a flawed society, you know, because man is flawed and that's never going to change. But it's also a unique force for good in the world. No other multi-ethnic, multi-religious society can credibly claim to be more democratic, small d, more prosperous and more just than the United States. But America can't remain the leader of the free world if itself is no longer free. To be the guarantor of Western security requires military and economic power, but also a sense of mission. And right now, Americans are committing mass character suicide. If the country goes beyond acknowledging that racism and inequality persist and must be fought and instead convinces itself that it is inherently and irredeemably racist, it can't possibly continue to believe that it has any right to lead. Such an America would reject the notion that the West is worth offending and regard Europe as also inherently oppressive, lest we forget. We know who will fill the vacuum left by an America in retreat and at war with itself as they watch America's self-immolation leaders in Moscow, Beijing and Tehran surely can't believe their luck. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Michael Warren Davis, editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine. M.W. Davis, thanks for joining us.
2: Appreciate it. Oh, I love to be here.
1: What about uh, what our uh, friend David Schwalmenthal, director of AJC Transatlantic Institute, had to say from across the pond about the importance of America continuing to be the beacon of freedom and the guarantor of Western civilization?
2: It's interesting because I wrote about this recently in the American Conservative. I did a piece that was—I meant it as a, as sort of a cautionary tale—but it was, uh, it got the most negative feedback of anything I'd ever written. I got, clapped back by the Wall Street, uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the uh, the writer and director of Caesar Milan, the Dog Whisperer. kind of had a go at me. <laughs> Was, uh, wow, that's pretty expansive uh, group. Yeah, so uh, in, in addition to the usual Vox and Slate, the point that I was trying to make was basically that uh, you know I don't know if you've heard the, this expression, Weimar America. It's yeah. very common in conservative circles, basically saying uh, the run America, is beginning, yeah, right. In, actually, more than Weimar. Germany, America is starting to look a lot like Spain during the Second Spanish Republic right before the Spanish Civil War. Because what we're faced with is, as you sort of alluded to, a left that has completely lost faith in the foundations of our country and is seeking to sort of violently purge all the undesirable elements from our society, everything that they consider to be reactionary and counter-revolutionary, which not only includes hard-bitten reactionaries like me, but people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and uh, even, you know, in Boston, depictions of the first Black regiment they consider to be complicit with white supremacy, and it's astonishing. And what I was all I was trying to say was basically, if this goes on, if they, if the left continues to demonize not only the right but everything that this country is built on, there is going to be a serious and possibly violent reaction. Um, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't disrupt the civil order. You can't commit acts of violence verbally and physically against the people that disagree with you and expect them to not fight back at some point. That is by no means desirable. But what is desirable, we have to say, is de-escalation. And de-escalation is the one thing that they refuse to commit to.
1: And the only way you get to de-escalation is if you have people stand up rather than appease Appeasement is provocative, and that's the posture of big city mayors and democrat socialists and some republicans uh and you make the point in terms of analogizing our situation to pre Franco Spain that I think is a really salient one, which is the left putting the right in the in a defensive posture, and that's the witch's brew for 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 violence and for tearing at the social fabric and so wouldn't it then stand to reason that for a peaceful pluralists the remedy is to be proactively courageous in defense of those underpinnings of a free society rather than on defense.
2: Well, there can be no reconciliation between people who disagree with each other if there is no good faith. And I don't mean good faith in sort of the quaint liberal democratic sense. I mean, you have to believe that the people that you're debating with can be won over to your side of the argument. It's not necessarily about us, you know, agreeing to disagree and all getting along and saying kumbaya. The left doesn't even believe that we can be redeemed, that we can be brought over to their way of thinking. That's the frightening thing, is this idea of, you know, I'm, I'm sure that you've talked a lot about, uh, what is her name, D'Angelo's idea of white fragility. Yeah, Robin D'Angelo, right. That, um, that you know, if, if you don't admit that you are, as a white person, if you don't admit that you are a racist, that is proof that you are a racist. There's absolutely no way for white people to prove that they are not racist. At that point, you know, it, literally damned if you do, damned if you don't. There is nothing that we can do. Uh, but you know, submit abjectly to the left's uh, to the left's political programs, and at that point, again, there's just there's no hope for de-escalation. So this is the
1: the issue. So Robin D'Angelo, Ibram Kendi, Ta-Nehisi Coates, to me, these are just uh, 2.0 race hustlers. Jesse Jackson, L. Sharpton were the race hustlers, the pimp, uh, the poverty pimps of a previous generation or two. Uh, these are individuals that have some, you know, b- basically. Uh, 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 academic credentials of some sort that uh, establish some, I don't know, legitimacy with the intelligentsia and maybe a way that uh, street preachers like Sharpton never did. So it's just 2.0. It'd be one thing if it was just them and they uh, create a consultancy class that goes to, corporate boardrooms and corporate retreats and hands out t-shirts and and everybody gets woke and they make a bunch of money or they go to schools and do the same thing with the teachers and the faculty lounge and everybody makes a bunch of money and that's all well and good because that can be contained but what you're talking about is putting people in the kafka trap in every aspect of their life everywhere they turn they're in a kafka trap and there are consequences for resistance and to me You know, I don't know how you get to that place of good faith or a belief in the ability to persuade based on the merits um, and avoid sort of this inexorable march that you're describing.
2: Well, you know, I I go out of my way to not say anything bad about the Middle Ages, but I will say this, that the idea of collective guilt was such a horrible stain On uh, on the history of of Western civilization, the idea that all Jews were complicit in the death of Christ. More recently, um, until Mitt Romney's lifetime, actually, I don't know because he talks about it. um, You know, the the Mormon Church believed that 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 black people were descended from Cain and that their skins were stained black by the uh, by the sins of their father, killing Abel. Um, This idea of collective guilt and the sort of the inexorable mark of of a, of a sin that we bear you know just by nature of our dna is uh is a dangerous concept because what you know it, it, it sounds it sounds extreme and it sounds a little bit remote now, but if it becomes sort of the the law of the land, the common law that white people are perennially guilty of the sins of of slavery and uh and uh and segregation, then that will if that is if that is infecting the the department of justice the the American legal system. That is going to have horrifying consequences down the road. Um, and that but that is, you know, that is the result of having, uh, a, you know, what I call in the article, the politicization of everything.
1: Right. And, you know, and, and but, 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 but absolutely
2: but, but, inescapable.
1: Right. And, and that includes uh, the immediacy of your personal safety when you have the Seattle Police Department sending letters out to businesses and residents saying, per this new city council ordinance, we will not be able to protect you effectively. You're on your own. When you have uh, mayors around the country appeasing the mom, uh, you see the reaction in terms of uh, increases in gun sales and the like. But, I mean, that is not a tenable situation. Some people are for law and order and the respect for private property and other people aren't. And the people that aren't are being backed by
2: your civilian political leaders. That is not sustainable. I've talked on your show before about the concept of bourgeois justice. And, uh, and this, is, this is a Marxist theme that uh, bourgeois justice is our idea of, you know, in order to find someone guilty of a crime, you need evidence, you need trial by jury, there's a procedure. Whereas they call revolutionary justice is what advances the revolution. You don't necessarily have to be literally complicit in the crime. If your being, if your existence, if your speech stands in the way of quote unquote progress, then you are you are guilty. You are guilty of obstructing the revolution, and that is the highest crime of all. And you know if the you know we we talked you know the the left hates the the concept of law and order. Even those who don't realize that the opposite of law and order is revolutionary justice. And you know and it it, it is inevitable that if you if you be as soon as you start to peel away the layers of the Anglo-American legal tradition that does say that you have the right to the presumption of innocence, the right to a trial by jury, to evidence-based prosecution, then it is only, it's a very, very, very short line uh, to to that concept of revolutionary justice where the legal system is being used baldly to advance political ends. He is Michael
1: Warren Davis. He's the editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine and the author of The Reactionary Mind. Michael Warren Davis, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate
2: it. Thank you, sir.
0: Listen to the podcast of the show at danproffshow.com.
1: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Let's talk about congressional Republicans. Uh, for more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined again by Steve Moore, economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, and author of Trumponomics. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, guys. I, I mean, I got to tell you, I, I don't know what kind of position you're in, but I, it's one thing to uh, make a strategic error in uh, walking away from the payroll tax cod and indulging the, uh, the, the position of Nancy Pelosi. It's another thing for Steve Mnuchin to go on national TV and insult the intelligence of people like me by comparing a transfer payment to Americans to a payroll tax cut and suggesting actually the transfer payment to Americans, the the welfare check to Americans, is actually more stimulative because it gets into the hands of Americans faster uh, it's really yeah. disgusting, and I don't understand why Trump continues to allow him to be point man on fiscal policy.
3: So we had this argument with Steve Mnuchin, and by the way, I'm friends with Steve Mnuchin. Uh, but but I, you're right, Dan. He is he's just wrong on this. He was arguing throughout the last three weeks when we were kind of putting the plan together that we said let's give people let's let keep people keep their own money. That's not a welfare check, you know. Let's let people not uh, let's not have the government take 7.5% out of everybody's paycheck before they see it. Uh, that way you've got an uh, incentive to work more. It's a 7.5% pay raise uh, for a, a worker. It's a 7.5% reduction in the cost for small businesses. Now, in economics is about incentives. You incentivize people to work. You incentivize employers to hire. Uh, and by the way, why not give a 7.5% pay raise to the, to the firefighters, to the nurses, to the, to the sanitation workers, to the deliver people, the people are the heroes of the economy? Why not give them a pay raise? Of course, Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to do that, but you are so right. That's a very different thing than a welfare check, which is essentially what these are you know, these $1,200 payments. It's just, again, governments are just going to send people free money. It's the same thing, by the way. Uh, you know, we're fighting this idea with the Democrats, and they are defending the idea that workers who are unemployed should get, in many cases, twice as much money for not working as the people who are working in the, in the job that they used to have. I mean, that's crazy. I, everybody's for a safety net for somebody who lost their job, especially in this kind of environment. But, but the idea that the person who goes on the construction crew and works 40 hours a week makes less money than the person who stays on unemployment, come on, folks, that's not America. That's bad economics. And that, you know, Nancy Pelosi and the left is going crazy on this. How dare Donald Trump talk about reducing those unemployment benefits? My gosh, you're going to have blood in the streets. Let me just say one thing about evictions. You know, the, the, the government's now saying, saying to like 30 million people, you don't have to pay your rent. And, you, you, and so I have friends who own apartment buildings. And by the way, they are not rich. They're not rich. Guess what? When people don't pay the rent, then they can't pay the mortgage on the building. Right. I mean, this is how are we condoning this kind of activity that the government's telling people you don't have to pay your rent. My friend says 70% of the people in his apartment buildings are not paying their rent right now. How can he, now that, that means he can't pay his mortgage. He can't pay the bank. I mean, that filters through the economy in a very negative way. We have to hold people responsible for their own behavior. These are tough times for everybody, but we should reward the people who are working and, we should try to do everything we can to get people off unemployment. By the way, I don't think that President Nancy Pelosi wants to get people off unemployment. She wants to go in the election with 25 million people unemployed because all they care about is winning. They don't care about poor people. They don't care about reviving the economy. They care about power.
1: Well, it seems to me that's a clarion call for working people. Until you hold people in public office accountable, don't expect other yep. people to hold themselves accountable. Because you're not holding exactly. your, you're not holding uh, yourself accountable essentially by the representation you're choosing. So these are these are some real stark choices to be made, and uh, you know the president and his team need to do a better job of uh, laying them out in no uncertain terms.
3: We do look. We have turned economics upside down. Every economic principle. So it's a good thing to give people more money for not working than working because that stimulates the economy, huh? How's that work? I mean, you know, okay, let's give everybody $10,000 a month, and everybody can be rich, and none of us have to work. I mean, that would be a wonderful thing, wouldn't it? I mean, and we can drop money out of helicopter windows and just give everybody free money, and that's going to stimulate the economy. Milton Friedman taught us, that, you know, government spending does not stimulate because the only way that the government can give a dollar to somebody is taking from somebody else. And it, it, what it's doing is taking money from the productive people and it's giving it to the unproductive people. That is no way to grow an economy. Then they say, oh, by the way, we are going to pay for this. We're going to massively increase the taxes on the small businesses and the companies and, and the people who are working to pay for the people who are not. I mean, it, it, you just can't make this stuff up. It is turning economics upside down. And if, if the American people fall for this, we're going to have a great depression.
1: Here's what people should be asking: Why are we doing this? Stop looking yeah, short not, term for your two grand, for goodness sakes, and think about the future of this gosh darn country.
3: Well, how much am I getting? I mean, are people, I hate, nuts? You know why we're doing it, Dan? Because I have. I hate to say this, but people, American people, love. Free money. And if the government yeah, says, I'm going to would you like the government to give you $1,200? Sign me up. I mean, and so that's even more popular than the payroll tax uh, uh, cut because people go, wow, this is free. And, and, and by the way, people are going to just go out and spend it, and that's going to stimulate the economy. It's going to help small businesses. Come on, that's not the way an economy works. We've got to get people back in jobs. We've got to, now, by the way, did you see that, uh, that Joe Biden yesterday says, oh, and by the way, we're going to raise the, the minimum wage to $15 an hour. $15 <laughs> an hour? Come on, how much, how much, they will. And, you know, my son is working now. He's, I'm really proud of him. He's working really hard. He's working uh, uh, on a construction project. He's getting 12 bucks an hour. He's learning a lot about, he said, dad, now I know what it is to, you know, to work. Now I realize what you're talking about, about rewarding work, but you know, he wouldn't have that job. He wouldn't have that job if it was a $15 amount minimum wage. They wouldn't have hired him.
1: Yeah, well, we, we know what their class warfare propaganda is. What, what I don't understand, I understand that. What I don't understand is the lack of a willingness to make the arguments against it. If, you, if you're offering, if you're starting from their premises and not going quite as far as they want to go, you're losing. I don't understand why that is unclear.
3: Well, Donald, look, I I love Donald Trump. I worked for him. I think he's been really great on the economy. He th- he's a Keynesian too. He thinks you know, flood the zone with with all this free money, and it's going to stimulate the economy, and it's all this Keynesian nonsense. I'll tell you another thing that's nonsense. It's and by the way, I want to say something positive about Trump, and it's related to this. One of the things that is in Trump's uh, you know economic stimulus bill is to give a ten thousand dollar voucher yes. to every single parent who is in a school district where the schools are not going to open up. And I believe that would include most of the Chicago area. Yes. What a wonderful thing. If you want to homeschool your kid, you get $10,000. My wife is, is forming a little alliance with five or six other parents, a, a couple of fathers and uh, three or four mothers. They're going to they're create a classroom. Yeah, and that, you know what? They're probably they're probably going to get better educated than going to these teachers unions. We've got to stand up to the teachers unions. both I don't know if in Chicago, but San Francisco, they said they're not going back to work. until they get Medicare for all tax increases on the rich, and the Green New Deal. That's
1: all well and good. Uh, right up until Steve Mnuchin deals it away with Nancy Pelosi. So let's let's hope that, let's hope they know. hold fast on it. But you're right. That, that's to. a silver lining. But let's hope they hold fast. Steve Moore. Economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, and author of Trumponomics. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
3: Have a great week.
0: Monday, it's a gas.
3: Grab that cash with both hands and make a stash. A new car can be out for starvation. Think about New York
4: football team.
0: Exposing. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to the show. Artist and pro-life activist Taylor Hansen painted for seven straight hours in front of his local Planned Parenthood mill in Salt Lake City, Utah, to complete his Baby Lives Matter mural. And uh, it's become a bit of a viral sensation, uh, inspiring um, those to do the same elsewhere. There's a GoFundMe effort too. Baby Lives Matter. We paint pro-life murals if you want to contribute to their efforts to uh, pick up on this uh, recommitment in America to the preservation of human life from cradle to natural death. I know that's not exactly the posture of Black Lives Matter or many of the other groups talking about uh, the sanctity of human life. But while we're talking about the sanctity of human life, we might as well expand the parameters of discussion, shouldn't we? Uh, Particularly when uh, Planned Parenthood, which has uh, previously responded to the uh, ghoulish nature of uh, the organization's founder, Margaret Sanger, a eugenicist, but not done what the Planned Parenthood of Greater New York did the other week, as we discussed on this show, which is remove Sanger's name from its Manhattan mill because of her, quote, harmful connections to the eugenics movement. Uh, The Wall Street Journal, on the occasion of that news, uh, published some excerpts from a Margaret Sanger fact sheet some 15 years ago put out by Planned Parenthood. (laughs) And uh, in it, Planned Parenthood uh, writes, although Sanger uniformly repudiated the racist exploitation of eugenics principles, she agreed with the progressives of her day who favored uh, incentives for voluntary hospitalization, sterilization of people with disease, uh, uh, regulations to prevent the immigration of the diseased and the so-called feeble-minded the United States, and so on and so forth. And the Planned Parenthood comparing her to Thomas Jefferson, of course, sure. Uh, attempts to discredit the family planning movement because of its early twentieth-century founder, because its early twentieth-century founder was not a perfect model of early twenty-first-century values, is like disavowing the Declaration of Independence because its author Thomas Jefferson bought and sold slaves. Hmm. I don't know if that that uh, historical analogy holds up under scrutiny to help us with that. We're pleased to be joined by Thomas Cargill. He's a research fellow at the Independent Institute, Professor Emeritus of Economics in the College of Business at the University of Nevada, University of Nevada, Reno. Uh, Professor Cargill, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. Is that, uh, is that fair, what Planned Parenthood said, to uh, to discredit Planned Parenthood because of Margaret Sanger, is to discredit the Declaration of Independence because Jefferson owned slaves?
9: It's a, The short answer is no. Um, it's a, a revisionist history. Uh, Planned Parenthood has been well aware of Margaret Sanger's support of eugenics and scientific racism, uh, which was a key element of the progressive movement. Uh, at the turn of the century, all the way up until the late 1930s. Uh, there have been many efforts to whitewash uh, Sanger, uh, and in the past refer to her eugenics, uh, forced sterilization, concentration camp advocacy, you know, where imbeciles and other moral degenerates would be housed until they were, uh, could be made acceptable to join society. They've known all about that, but they, they they couch it as well. It's a complicated history, yeah, because Margaret Sanger is such a social justice warrior, and she has done so much for the women's movement, and a lot of people were racist at that time, and it's just a really a minor blemish uh, on an otherwise stellar life. Um, it's just all nonsense, and I think in the last ten years. There's been quite a bit of research done on eugenics and scientific racism, and it's a real inconvenient truth for the progressives. And I think that they kind of saw the handwriting on the wall, and they, especially with Black Lives Matter, so you can't have any association with with an institution that is trying to reduce the birth rate of blacks.
1: Right, like but like 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 for- yeah, like when she spoke at a Ku Klux Klan rally, or like when she called. Uh- Jewish people and Italian families as, you know, criticize them for quote unquote, filling the insane asylums, filling the hospitals, filling our feeble-minded institutions. But those are problematic statements that should have been then. They certainly are now.
9: Well, yeah, that's true. But it was, it was an important part of the entire progressive movement. And others in in American life uh, accepted their views. One of the real inconvenient truths is its conventional wisdom that scientific racism emerged in Nazi Germany and that Hitler had been sort of waiting around for an opportunity to institute all these policies that eventually led to Auschwitz. The truth, the historical document of truth is just the opposite. Eugenics first emerged in England, but very quickly moved to the United States. And there were a couple of reasons for that. Let's let's,
1: let's hold it right there and uh, we got to take a break. And on the other side, I want to get to, the, uh, the, the historical genesis of eugenics and and the reasons why it moved to the United States. More with Professor Thomas Cargill, Research at the Independent Institute, right She's after this.
0: Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to the show. We're talking to Thomas Cargill. He's a research fellow at the Independent Institute and Professor Emeritus of Economics in the College of Business at the University of Nevada, Reno. We're talking about uh, the history of eugenics in the United States in particular, Uh, and uh, uh, he has an expansive piece on eugenics in high school history that I want to get to as well in terms of the whitewashing of history and the indoctrination of young people that continues to this day. An interesting research project he did into high school history textbooks that we'll get to. But we left off, we were talking about how uh, eugenics actually had its advent in England and then moved quickly to the United States, and you were about to explain why that happened.
9: Yeah, I think there there were two reasons why. Because you know we were just a, a few day, decades after the end of the Civil War, so very large numbers of blacks were free. They could vote, and there was a great deal of concern about them diluting the purity of the sort of white uh, race. Uh, and in fact, Madison Grant, you know, turn of century, wrote right a book about The Passing of the Great Race. So here in the United States, because of the end of the Civil War and the blacks' slavery was ended and they were given right to vote, there was a great deal of concern because many people have very low opinion of Blacks and they, they place them in the unfit category. And eugenics sort of really provided a foundation for that. It, it almost made racial discrimination Uh, put it on the moral high ground, because now what we were trying to do is really purify and improve the the quality of the population. Uh, The second reason is at the turn of the century, we had a lot of immigration coming in from the Mediterranean area and Eastern Europe, uh, and a lot of these people were not very well educated and regarded as uh, dumb. You know, all of the Polish jokes... And so I think those two factors, the fact that we had ended slavery, large number of blacks, uh, it was fear of them becoming a political and economic uh, uh, power and the immigration. And so eugenics sort of was the savior, the scientific base where you could discriminate against these groups. And at the same time, we could throw in the imbeciles and we could throw in the disabled and we could throw in uh, prostitutes and, and, or the unemployables. I mean, this was a real equal opportunity uh, racist, scientific racism. That attracted Germany at the turn of the century, and it really attracted the Nazis. And in fact, a book has just been published by uh, James Whitman, and it's uh, titled something like America is the model for Nazi Germany race law. And that connection between the United States and Germany and Nazi Germany in the 30s is well established, well documented. And Margaret Sanger was aware of this. In fact, in her birth control review in 1933, a paper written by Ernst Rubin was published. 1933, this is the same year that Hitler became uh, dictator of Germany. Ernst Rubin was an internationally known eugenicist who did a lot of work with American scholars and researchers. And he had just been appointed to a very high position in Nazi Germany's uh, movement for forced sterilization. And then eventually he directed the euthanasia of young children and uh, disabled individuals and mentally uh, affected individuals. Anyway, he published a paper in this journal. The Birth Control, a journal established by Margaret Sanger, and which he talked about for sterilization how you use propaganda, how you make it available uh, on a free basis to uh, individuals. But at the end of this article, he says, Listen, when you really get down to it, compulsion is absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. We, you know, it's going to be voluntary sterilization to begin with but it's going to end up as forced sterilization. And in the United States, sixty to 70,000 people were forcibly sterilized in this country. And that number understates the number that were forcibly sterilized because the difference between voluntary sterilization and forced sterilization in many cases becomes a difference without a distinction because the pressure of the state societal pressure
1: is put on individuals to be sterilized. No, it's not a pretty history. It was not a pretty history. It's not a pretty history. And we're in the the moment right now where we're reckoning with some of the not so pretty uh, aspects of American history. This is uh, not being tackled for all kinds of obvious reasons. But I wanted to get to this piece that you wrote for the Independent Review and this uh, look see you did looking at nine. High school textbooks used in U.S. history courses and uh, how they tackle this issue of America's history with eugenics and who exactly were the purveyors of it, including a history book by uh, Thomas Bailey. And I think uh, when I was in high school, I used a history book that was written by Thomas Bailey. So looking again, so looking at how we understand American history or don't, just as some people are uh, right now winning Pulitzer Prizes for trying to rewrite it. What did you find when you looked at these high school history textbooks?
9: Well, I found that the progressive movement is portrayed in very, very positive terms, though they will have a caveat that some were fascinated with eugenics, some had racist views, but those are always put off to the side. as not very important. The subject of eugenics is hardly covered in these textbooks, except for a brief mention in one or two of them. There's no discussion of the forced sterilization that took place in the United States. Um, And there's no discussion of the influence that eugenics in the United States had on Germany, especially Nazi Germany. Um, And one of the most amazing uh, omissions is um, there's a case, a Supreme Court case, 1927, Buck versus Bell, yeah. in where the Supreme Court, in an 8 to 1 decision, institutionalized forced sterilization. It gave it legal authority of the highest court in the United States. And it was regarding a young woman. And uh, Chief Justice Oliver Holmes wrote the majority view in which he framed the plaintiff in the following. We have had enough generations of imbeciles, and the state has the right to force uh, this woman to go through sterilization procedure. That forever will be a blemish on the Supreme Court.
1: He is Thomas Cargill, Research Fellow at the Independent Institute, Professor Emeritus of Economics in the College of Business at the University of Nevada, Reno. And uh, we certainly appreciate your scholarship on the topic. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor Cargill. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for having me. Take care. the more you'll know this is the Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back. Uh, Picking up off our discussion about the sanctity of human life, an uplifting story to end amid all the dreariness. This wonderful op-ed in the Wall Street Journal the other week, uh, the real work of parenting a rare girl. This is by Heather Lanier. When I was uh, first pregnant in 2011, I went above and beyond the prenatal guides to uh, make what I thought was required of me, a perfect baby. My baby, Fiona, was born full term, yet weighed only four pounds, 12 ounces. Red flag. The pediatrician said Fiona was either from a bad seed or bad soil. He left and I cried. The woman who came home from the hospital was not entirely me anymore. She was told that her baby was abnormal, and she knew that by abnormal, doctors also meant wrong. Back then, she thought her mission was to love her baby out of that category. She believed in normal, and she believed that she and her child would reach it. And she goes on to chart the progress of Fiona. We didn't know then that wolf Hirschhorn, which is the syndrome that Fiona was born with, occurs in one in 50,000 births. Your odds of becoming a pro athlete are twice as good as your odds of having a rare disease that affects fewer than five out of 10,000 people the uh, potential impact of this syndrome. Intellectual disabilities range from mild to severe. She looked it up online. Seizures occur in over 90% of children. Mortality rate is estimated at 34% in the first two years of life. She uh, notes that what what, uh, the issue is, uh, a missing piece of of a chromosome. And I imagine hunting each corner of the earth for that missing bit of material on Fiona's fourth chromosome. She uh, recalled thinking of and seeing all of the... uh, other girls, Fiona's age and being you know, perfectly healthy and not suffering from the challenges, the abnormality. But this is where my fantasy stopped. And so the real work of parenting began loving my daughter as she was and rejecting the false virtue of normal. We moved to Vermont when Fiona was 14 months old, assembled a team of therapists. They perceived Fiona's many delays, but they also saw her capabilities and intelligence. She said nothing more than ah and mm, but the speech therapist noted how she inflected those two sounds to mean a hundred different things. Mom, I'm hungry. Mom, you're hilarious. Mom, I'm tired of you. I learned to discard normal and embrace possible. Presume competence sent the disability advocates. And so I did. I learned to discard normal and embrace possible. It wasn't easy. My daughter needed no t- uh, 10 times the support of a typical kid. It also felt like the truest, most human work I could do to love someone into whomever they would become this at the same time that Richard Dawkins, the godless by bi- evolutionary biologist was uh, tweeting that it was a moral for a pregnant woman to knowingly carry to term a child with Down syndrome because disabilities decrease happiness and increase suffering. I was appalled. When uh, Fiona reached kindergarten in 2016, I fretted whether or not her teachers would think the same, that her life wasn't worth it. At a standard public school, among kids twice her size, would she be dismissed as incapable, rejected as less than? I couldn't know that in one year her gross motor confidence would climb. She'd saunter down the hall with the height of a three-year-old and the confidence of a cool kid. In the winters, she'd attempt cross-country skiing during gym, where she'd learn In the snow, which you already knew on regular ground, the art of falling over. The point of this human life, I believe, is love, and the ridiculous and brave and risky act of love turns my heart into taffy, stretches across the broad spectrum of human feeling. I hurt, I long, I exalt, I rejoice, and yes, my chest sometimes ache from the work of raising a rare girl, but the ache in my chest is a cousin of joy. And I will tweet out this most excellent essay from Heather Lanier. Thank you for joining us on another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow.
0: This is the Dan Proft Show.